here we are uh, shifting the schedule all around to uh, do the code next week and finish Covenant today. So you guys excited for that? Excited to hear that 10th step? A couple of you are? All right. So thanks to to both of you that are excited about that. And I hope you enjoy today's message. The rest of you, uh, get out your phone, update your status, maybe tweet a little bit, do whatever you need to 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 get through the next few minutes. All right? Uh, So we're excited about that. Hey, let me tell you just a little bit about next week, the code. Uh, Listen, you do not want to miss next week. It is going to be a phenomenal celebration uh, of our three years of of ministry uh, and uh, potluck afterwards. For those of you that are covenant partners, we are going to be taking care of some church business as well. So we want you to be here. We want you to be a part of that voting process for for church-related business things. Uh, And for those of you that are not covenant partners and you're not interested in church business, we're giving you free food so you'll come, all right? Everybody good? So you can handle some free food. What we need the most next week is main dishes. Okay? So if you sign up today, you are hereby obligated to bring a main dish. All right? Right now, we have 47 side dishes, 52 desserts, and one main dish. Okay? So we need main dishes. All right? So uh, help us out. Sign up in the Welcome Center. Bring a main dish, and we'll all have a great meal uh, after church next week, all right? So let's do the covenant. Now, if you remember, what we, uh, what we are kind of establishing is we're tracing the idea of covenant uh, from its Old Testament roots uh, all the way into the New Testament because when we look at the ancient culture, the idea of a covenant is actually a common thing where people would enter into covenant with one another all the time. And what that covenant entailed, they would outline all the parameters, they would say what this covenant is all about, but in order to enter into that covenant, Uh, they had to walk through certain steps uh, of of actions together. Similar to in the modern culture, we would consider um, uh, the covenant of marriage so that when you go to a wedding, there are certain things that you can expect to see as these two people enter into the covenant of marriage together. And the same is true in ancient culture. If they have made a covenant, these two folks, whoever they may be, uh, and they've outlined the parameters of the covenant together, they had to walk through certain steps in order to verify that covenant. I want to remind you as we start today of the first nine, uh, nine steps of the covenant. And then I want to focus in on the 10th. Because what we discover is that as God enters into covenant with Abraham, he walks through, through the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, walks through every single one of those steps of the covenant in order that we might be in covenant with God through Christ, in order that we may have victory in Christ, in order that we, we, that we may be in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He has walked through all these steps of the covenant. Uh, so I want to review those with you, and I want to review them not just with the step, but also with the uh, with the, the Christa logical, big word, right? The, the way that Christ also enters through that, all right? So, you guys ready for a review? All right, so let's walk through it. The first step of the covenant-making ceremony, if two people are entering into covenant with together, is that they would have to exchange their outer robe, all right? Exchange the outer robe. Now, each of these steps is, of course, symbolic. Okay, so as they exchange the outer robe, the idea or the symbolism behind it is that there would be a confusion of identities. That if I give this suit coat uh, to uh, Alan, where's Alan? Alan, there you are. If I gave this suit coat to Alan, uh, and then I wore his blue shirt, his outer garment, then as I was wearing his blue shirt, you'd say, is that Alan or is that Andy, right? It's a confusion of identities. And you would look at Alan and you would say, wow, that's a great looking suit coat. Is that Pastor Andy's? 
And you would say, but that's Alan wearing it, right? It's a confusion of identities, right? So they would exchange the outer robe. They would ex- this, I, the symbolism is confusion of identities. And then, of course, what Jesus does is the outer robe that you and I wear is our sinfulness. It, it is our, it, we are prone to wander from the God we love, right? As the song that we just sang proclaims, that our, our natural tendency is towards sin. It's bent towards sin. So the outer garment that we wear is our sinfulness. And of course, the outer garment that, that Jesus himself wears is his righteousness. And what happens is that in the New Testament, we find from Scripture that what Jesus Christ does is in his death, he takes on our sinfulness so that we might take on his righteousness. They, we exchange the robes. Does that make sense? powerful, powerful symbolism and truths and realities as we get deeper and deeper into the covenant ceremony. And if I take that long on every step of the review, we will be here until 2 o'clock this afternoon, all right? So I'm going to try to speed it up a little bit. Second step is they would do the exchange of belts. This is to symbolize the exchange of strengths. In other words, every strength that I bring into this partnership is now available to you. And every strength that this other person brings into the partnership is now available to me. That we are stronger together because now our strengths are combined. And they would do that by exchanging their belts. And of course, what we learn in the New Testament is that Jesus himself takes on our frailty, uh, that he becomes flesh and blood. He takes on our frailty and then he assigns to us his strength. Uh, powerful, powerful stuff. Okay, third one is ex- the exchange of weapons. Now, this is to symbolize the exchange of enemies. Uh, in, in modern day culture, we would say, I've got your back, right? If you mess with so-and-so, you're, mess- if you're messing with me. If you mess with my covenant partner, you're messing with me, right? And so this this, this exchange of enemies. Uh, and so that's, in the, New, in the New Testament then, under Christ, is that Christ took on our enemy, which is death, And then he defeated that through the resurrection. And then we take on his enemy, which is the devil. And then Ephesians chapter 6 says that we are then equipped to resist him, to resist the enemy in our life. Right? So we exchange enemies. This has all sorts of implications for our everyday life. This has all kinds of things to do with the life that you and I live in schools and in workplaces and in neighborhoods, right? That's what I want you to get a hold of is that this ancient stuff matters for today. It's not just ancient and oh, what great history lesson. It's this history absolutely affects us and has incredible implications for us Today, The fourth step is they would sacrifice an animal that is declared clean. And uh, of course, this would be a spotless, uh, spotless animal. Uh, this, is, this is the covenant language that in Genesis chapter 15, when Abram says, okay, you've made this promise that I would have uh, descendants that would number the, star, the stars of the sky and that we would take possession of the land. Abram says, how will I know that we'll take possession of the land? And God's response is, go get a heifer. Because we're about to sacrifice. In other words, it's this confidence of, I'm not just going to make a promise. I'm going to prove it to you. And I'm going to bind myself to you in relationship by making a covenant with you. It's covenant language. Go get a heifer. That's the sacrifice. Then, of course, we know that the Lord, Jesus Christ, provides his son to become the once and for all sacrifice for us in the New Testament. Step five, okay, you guys remember all this? Is this ringing a bell? Step five is the walk of death. It's the symbolism where they would, they would split the animal in half as part of the sacrifice. Then they would walk through that dead animal right through the middle called the walk of death. Gross, right? 
It gets grosser, I promise. But they walk through this dead animal. And and the symbolism is that I'm dying to myself. I'm dying to all my personal rights. I cannot think of myself outside of relationship and covenant partnership with this other person. I no longer have this... this, this identity that is of my own, but rather I am now bound to this other person. It's a giving up of, of our, our personal rights. And then we learn in the, the New Testament that we must lose our life in order to gain it. We must forever uh, give ourselves to Christ. Striking of hands is number six. This is a mark on the body, typically the wrist, where they would uh, make a small incision on the wrist. And then the two covenant partners would mingle their blood together. Uh, as a way of, of solidifying uh, the covenant, as a way of leaving a permanent mark, and so that they could display that I am in fact already in covenant with someone else. A lot of historians agree that this is where the universal wave comes from. That when I wave to you, my covenant mark is being displayed. And it's saying to you, I'm already in covenant with someone else. Now in the New Testament, there is a mark on the body that, 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 Jesus, that God asked for in his covenant with Abraham. It's not a slit on the wrist, but it's the mark of circumcision. Uh, That is the mark of the covenant. And then in the New Testament, what Paul says is what matters is not physical circumcision. What matters is the mark on the heart, the mark of the life, the circumcision of the heart. It has all kinds, again, implications for our life today. Number seven, the pronouncement of blessings and curses. Partners would face each other. They would pronounce, blessed shall you be in your family and all your possessions and your descendants if if you follow these things. And cursed shall you be if you do not. Uh, and then what we learn in the New Testament is that according to Galatians 3.13, Jesus becomes the curse for us. And so in the New Testament, the blessing is passed on, but the curse is not. Because the curse, Jesus Christ takes on. Now, if this is all a bit confusing to you, if you haven't heard of any of this before, go back to our podcast where we explored all of these things in length. That will be a help to you to help frame this. Uh, so we podcast all of our messages. You can go uh, to wherever you find podcasts, the iTunes store. You can go to our website, all that kind of stuff, okay? Number eight is the covenant meal. Partners would face each other. They would say, as you are ingesting this food, you are, in fact, ingesting me. You are taking me into your very life. A lot of historians agree, at least for Americans, this is how we, where we get uh, the, the, the uh, husband and wife feeding each other at the, at the covenant of marriage. Is that as you take this food in, you are, are, in fact, ingesting me into your very life. And then, of course, in the New, in the New Testament, Jesus says... Take me in, and as you, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. I become your covenant meal. Last step, nine. Of course, we're going to learn about ten today. But the last step that we've been uh, exploring is the exchange of names. Partners would face each other, and they would combine their names. Um, the, so that um, if I'm entering, I think the example I used earlier is if I'm entering into covenant with Zach, our worship pastor, uh, then my name would no longer be Andy Lucas. My name would be uh, Andy Kreider Lucas. His name would be Zach Lucas Kreider. We combine our names. And of course, we see this when God enters into covenant with Abraham. Uh, he's not always called Abraham, is he? Right before the covenant is made, he's called, his name is Abram. And, what, and, and God's name is, of course, Yahweh. And he changes his name to take on a portion of God's name from Abram to Abraham, taking on the Yahweh. And then his wife's name is changed from Sarai to Sarah. And then if you look at the Old Testament, God refers to himself after this covenant many times over and over again, not just as God, but the God of Abraham. They exchange names. Powerful stuff. 
if we stopped there, it would be enough to change our life. Like, part of the reason that we were doing this series, and part of the reason that I have ferociously uh, rescheduled everything on Sunday morning to, to give you the last step, is because I believe that this message has power to change our lives. That if we will just get a grip and begin to understand the implications of all this stuff about covenant, that it will forever impact our lives for the kingdom. It will forever give us an assurance of God's incredible love. It will forever give us confidence of the power of God that is available to us in our life. That as God has entered into covenant with us, his power and his strength that rose Jesus from the grave and created the world with a word is available to us in our, in, in our life. Do not tell me that you cannot break free from that addiction. Don't tell me that that relationship can't be healed because the power of God is available to us. If we would understand the Implications of the covenant teaching, it will forever change our lives, even in the first nine steps. But the step I want to share with you today is perhaps the most powerful step of all. Are you ready? The tenth step of the covenant making ceremony is that those covenant partners would exchange their oldest son. Now, when I say exchange for covenant partners, I mean literally exchange. If I'm entering into covenant, part, covenant partnership with someone, my oldest son would go and leave our household and enter into their household to be raised, to be cared for, uh, to be watched over. They would literally exchange oldest sons. And so my covenant partner would come into my home And I would begin to raise them and care for them and watch over them and help them to to be equipped for the world in which they live. It's a very serious step. It's a heartbreaking step. But it's a step that finalized the ceremony of being able to say, you know what? We are serious about this. But the question immediately comes up for Genesis, right? As we're looking at Abraham entering into covenant with God, the, the, the question immediately becomes, how in the world does one exchange sons with God himself, right? I mean, because God does not have this sort of physical house that my son could move into. And so how do you exchange sons with God? Well, you do it. Through sacrifice. And that's precisely what Abraham was called to do. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. I want to read to you today the first 19 verses uh, of this chapter. Uh, this is a, uh, a story that is um, very well known. If you grew up in the church, you uh, have probably heard about this from time to time. Uh, my, my sense and my guess is that you may have never heard about it from this perspective. Uh, you may have never understood it in light of the, the history of the covenant. And so I want to explore this story, uh, specifically looking at it as this 10th step of the covenant-making ceremony. It says this, Genesis chapter 22, the first 19 verses. It says, Sometime later God tested Abraham... And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. 
And early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey. And he took, him to t- and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And he, after he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now when they had reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it, and then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. The angel of the Lord appeared and came out from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over to the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Or Jehovah Jireh. Jireh, Jehovah God, Jireh will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God solidifies the covenant after Abraham's act of obedience. He solidifies all the outlines of the covenant. And the neighbor returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed there. Now, this is a a, a powerful story and an incredible story. And a lot of times, at least when I was growing up in the church, the the understanding of the story simply simply stood here or or landed here where we looked at at, at God's sort of incredible call and and, 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 um, command of, of go and take your son and sacrifice him. And, and a lot of times growing up, I, I thought, what kind of God would require that? What kind of God would even ask that? And, and then we see that Abram, the scripture says, so Abram early the next morning got up and started going. And so the application of this passage a lot of times just sort of sits at the surface of of sort of this underlying question of why would God require this, but isn't Abraham faithful? Isn't Abraham obedient? And then we sort of, we look at this story and we sort of say, well, you all should be obedient just like Abraham is, right? And that's sort of like the, as, as, as profound as this story got, I mean, yeah, it's compelling. And yeah, it has lots of neat things. And, and of course, we're going to look at it parallels Christ in many ways. But a lot of times the implication for our lives is simply, let's be obedient 
or do our best to be obedient like Abraham was. And I want to frame this story in terms of the covenant. That when God said, when the scripture says God began to test Abram, the test is in relation to the covenant. The test is, we've walked through all these steps together, and now that we're to the 10th step, it's go time. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Do you want to go through with this? There's still a chicken exit, right? You've been on the roller coaster, and you get nervous the closer you get to the front of the line, and they have a chicken exit, right? That's exactly what this is like. It's like we've walked through all these steps. We've gone up the stairs toward the roller coaster. There's still a chicken exit available to you. you, Are you sure you want to go through with this? Some of you are thinking the roller coaster analogy is a little bit sacrilegious, right? But it's, it's a test of, are you sure you want to go through with this? Because you know what is required. See, I would argue with you that, that, that God's call for Abraham to give up his oldest son is not a surprise. And that's why Abram, Abraham, early the next morning, can go and set about the work that is required to fulfill the covenant. So the test is, are you sure you want to go through with this? Abraham isn't shocked. He isn't confused. He knows that this is part of the deal. And often we are shocked, and often we are confused at his level of obedience, but we don't understand it in terms of the covenant. This is the last step required to fulfill all that has gone on previous to this. And then it says, they, they, early the next morning, he went on his way. He brought, here's who he brought. And then, apparently, they're traveling for three days. Because in, in verse, um, verse 4, it says, Then on the third day, Abraham looked up and he knew that this was the place that he was called to sacrifice his son. On the third day. And it occurred to me that that, that is a lot of time to bail out on this deal. Right? I mean, have you ever had to make a really tough decision? A lot of times that decision needs to be made Fairly immediately. We consider the, the, the decision and then we got to make it. But what, ha- what happens here is that Abraham not only makes the decision, he sets out early the first day, but then on the third day, he's still with it. I mean, there is a lot of time for, for him to kind of bail out on this deal. And it, be- it occurs to me, now that I'm a parent, having to, to come to grips with what this actually means is, is, is completely heartbreaking. And even in my moment of greatest faith, and I said, God, this is what you're calling me to do, I'm going to do it. If I had three days, I would probably bail out. So on the third day, and we've got, we got to begin to understand what allows Abraham to have this kind of, of faith, this kind of, of resolve. And we learn this again from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, give us a window into this third day kind of, uh, of talk of being able to re- resolutely set out towards this goal for three days. It says this, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And he, had, he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his, own, his one and only son. And even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Abraham reasoned, that God could even raise the dead. And in so a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. 
You got to get a sense of the emotional weight of Abraham. When he's called to give up his one and only son, emotionally, Isaac is, is, is dead. Emotionally, Abraham has already made that sacrifice. For those three days, I, he's mourning the loss of Isaac. Isaac is right there beside him. He's helping him carry all the things to the, to the place of sacrifice. But emotionally, what Hebrews tells us is that Abraham has already emotionally said goodbye to Isaac. He's emotionally let him go. And so in a manner of speaking, when he is saved from a physical and actual sacrifice then he is, receives him back from the dead. Does that make sense? It's really, it's really phenomenal and profound, the kind of, of resolute uh, nature that Abraham is taking on here. That he emotionally says goodbye to Isaac and allows him to die in his heart. And so that when he is saved on that third day, he in his own, in, in Abraham's heart, is resurrected. Because he has already let him go. Now we're going to talk about all the ways that this mirrors Christ. But it's interesting, me, interesting to me too, a couple other things about this, this passage. Is that Abraham so, says that me and the boy are going to go over here and worship. And I, I just want to let you know that Worship is not something that the band does. It's not something that we do with the band. It's not even something that we just do on Sunday morning. Worship extends into all of our lives. That as we, as we walk in obedience with him, we are in fact worshiping. You've got to understand the nature of worship because a lot of times we, we, we say, we refer to just the music as worship. But, but those of you who are, are leaning forward, you're taking notes, you're plugging in to the message, not because I'm some kind of excellent speaker, but because you're interested in what God has to say to you today, that's worship. Because I promise to you today that if you'll tune in and allow the Spirit of God to speak to you, He has something to say to each and every one of you today. And when we tune in and listen, that itself is an act of worship. So Abraham, Abraham on his way to offer his son to God as the last step of the covenant, says to his servants, me and the boy, we're going to go worship. And then we will be back. It's this confidence in the incredible power of God. Why? What, uh, what, see, the, the, the idea here is that many of us, we have faith, but we don't ever enter into the greatest level or potential of faith in our lives. We don't ever reach a, a daring faith, a risky faith, an audacious faith in our life. And I think the reason is because we haven't got a handle. We haven't come to grips of all the truth and the reality of God that is made available to us. G Abraham, having entered into covenant with God and in that process, knows that all the strength of God is made available to him. And so he has, and that enables him to have confidence in, in the reality that God has the power to raise his son from the dead if he so chooses. Because the very vehicle of the promise he's being asked to sacrifice. And what's interesting is that as God gives up his only son, the very vehicle for the promise of the covenant, God must also give up. 
Do you see that? The promise that, that God makes Abraham is not possible without an oldest son, without an heir, Isaac. And God says, you must give him up. The very vehicle of the promise is what Isaac must give up. And then he says, all the nations, all the world will be blessed through you. When God enters into covenant, he knows that the very vehicle of blessing to the entire world, he must also give up. It's incredible truth and power that should raise our level of faith. That as you and I enter into covenant with God, enter into relationship with God, there is a power made available to you that many times we don't even begin to touch and explore in our lives. We battle and we battle and we battle. And the battle is is part of the story. I'm not saying that you're going to live a life free of of worry or or battle, but I want you to realize the level of, of power and strength made available to you if you call yourself a covenant partner with Christ today. So the incredible faith, because here, here, here's the difference. By the way, this isn't any, any of my notes, right? This is just, I just feel like I need to say this. The, 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 what we typically do when we come to a story like this is we say, Abraham is great and we should be great like him. And so what do we do? We pull up the bootstraps of our faith and then we fail and we say, oh, I can't do that. And we become guilty. And we live our life in a cycle of of this sort of faith and then guilt. Faith and guilt. Faith, failure, guilt. Faith, failure, guilt. But when we look at this story of Abraham, what he was in tune with and what enabled him to have this kind of resolute faith and have confidence in the strength and power of God is realizing that he is in covenant with the creator of the world. And what I want you to know today is that you can also be in covenant with the creator of the world through Jesus Christ. That same power is made available to you. So don't tell me that you can't change the world because you can. Don't tell me that you can't do what God is calling you to do because there is a strength available to you that you have no idea what's available. That's a side note. And that's my sermon within a sermon. <laughs> so, there's covenant all over this. We're going to worship and realizing the, the power and potential that God has to raise his son. And then Isaac asks, where is the lamb? And Abraham answers, Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. The God will provide. All the strength, all the resources of God are made available to me. And so God will provide. God will provide. Some of you need to know today that God will provide for you. Maybe not in the way you expect, maybe not in the way you hope. But rest on the assurance that all the resources of God are made available to you. For those of you who are in relationship with Christ. And then I love this, God reaffirming the covenant because you have done this, because you have followed all the parameters of the, of the covenant, because you have, in fact, walked through this 10th step. Then he reaffirms the covenant. Blessed shall you be and your descendants. Um, you will inherit the land and the entire world will be blessed through you. He reaffirms the promises in his life through obedience. Powerful 
powerful stuff. Now, the reality is, is that all of this, of course, ultimately prefigures, parallels, predicts Jesus. One of the, if you want to know what, what this book is about, this book is about a man named Jesus Christ. And as early in the story as Genesis, we are being prepared for the man that will save the world. The Savior, Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what this book is about. It's a story of the redemption of mankind through the person of Jesus Christ. And so I want to reaffirm this, that when God enters into covenant with Abraham, when God says in Genesis chapter 15 to Abraham, go get a heifer, he knows full well that he will have to give up his one and only son. And, and, and in fact, as, as God calls Abraham to do that and give up his son Isaac and sacrifice his son Isaac, so God is true to his word and he sacrifices his only son. He gives his son to us in the person of Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of parallels here because when, when Abraham says God will provide the lamb, that he's not just talking about the, the, the clean, the, the ram that is ultimately sacrificed later on in that story. It's a way of, of, of pre- preparing us and paralleling the, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ who took on all the sin of the world and who later was resurrected to defeat death. That, that when God will provide a lamb, parallels Jesus who is called the lamb of God, that he has been given to us through the sacrifice that we may have life. And he has taken up our sin. He has paid the penalty of death so that you and I can break free from the sin that grips us. Many of you today are are here and you're struggling with sin. And and, and the sin that is in your life, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's an, an addiction and a really outward sin. Maybe it's an inward sin where you just have so much bitterness inside of you. You can't hardly think a positive thought. Whatever the sin is, I want you to know today that Jesus Christ has already taken that sin upon himself and he has nailed it to the cross. He has already died for that sin that you struggle with and he has died for it so that you can be set free from it. And some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to know and have the confidence of God. But of course what all of this displays and what all of this demonstrates to us is the incredible love God has for us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave us His one and only Son, and whoever believes in Him will will not perish but have eternal life. If you have ever doubted the love that God has for you, my hope and my prayer throughout this whole covenant series has been that you would come into contact with the love of God again. Because through Jesus Christ, God has walked through every step so that you and I may enjoy life with him, our creator. So that you can come into contact with real and authentic life. Because the life that you seek to find through greater accumulation of wealth, through greater influence and power, through, through, through um, greater perceived significance, whatever it is that you are seeking to find real life, those are all parodies. They're fakes according to the life that Jesus Christ offers. And we can spend our whole lives chasing those parodies. But what Jesus Christ has done <laughs> 
is he has walked through these covenant steps for us to be in relationship with him and then offered to us life. And a lot of times we hear this term, eternal life. And my argument would be, eternal life does not begin when you die. You are right now. Right now, Christ has offered you eternal life. And we have a greater hope for the future. Right? We live in this struggle. And our hope for the future is is great and it's solid. But we cannot relegate the hope of our life only to the future. Because Christ offers us eternal life now. Real, authentic life of wholeness. Where we're not trying to to manipulate or, or seek out for only ourselves. But rather we join our life with the one who has died for us. That we may give our lives away for the cause of the kingdom. Many of you know what it's like to just live only for yourself. And you've not yet experienced the joy of living for something, someone, greater than yourself. But if all we do in life is try to look out for number one, then we are placing ourselves in the seat of God in our lives. May we know the incredible love that God has for you. There is nothing that you can do, nothing that you have done that could separate you from the love of God. Now, another way that this, of course, parallels Jesus is in the story, he says, God will provide a lamb. And of course, that's preparing us for the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. But on this third day, this idea that, 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 that uh, Abraham had let go, had sacrificed Isaac, in his own heart and in his own life, even though Isaac was still breathing and he's still there beside him, he had let him go. And then it says, on the third day, Abraham looked up, saw the place of the sacrifice, and then God provided. And so for Isaac, so for Abraham, Isaac was in a very real sense resurrected. And the same, of course, is true. That it's, except for Jesus Christ, it's not Figurative. It's not, it's not a metaphor. Jesus Christ physically really died a death where he took on our sin. But then he really and physically resurrected to defeat that death. So that you and I may have this life that we're talking about. It's a powerful prefigure parallel of Jesus Christ in our lives. Where God, to complete the covenant, gives us his very own Son, there is just one more thing that I want to share with you to end our covenant series. In these covenants, there were, there were two kinds of covenants. And aren't you glad that I shared that there's actually two kinds of covenants until the very end? <laughs> there are two kinds of, of treaties or covenants in the ancient culture. The Parity Treaty and the Suzerian Treaty. The Parity Treaty was when the two covenant partners were, were of, of uh, equal status in, in society. Uh, where they had similar strengths and similar weaknesses to bring in and to offer to one another. Uh, they sat on equal ground and yet they were combining uh, in covenant partnership together. That's the Parity Treaty. But in a Caesarian treaty was when a king would choose to enter into covenant 
um, with a common man, a peasant. And in this sort of treaty, the, the, the strengths and the weaknesses are very lopsided. It's this idea of one person has everything and the other person has nothing. And the question might be, well, why would the king ever benefit from that sort of agreement and that sort of of covenant? And when those two people were entering into covenant together, the conversation that they would have would probably look a lot like this. Well, I don't have anything to give the peasant would say. I don't have any strengths that you don't already have. And, and I, you're a king. You have all the, all the riches in the world. So I don't have anything to give, the peasant would say. And the king would say, I know. I have everything, and you have nothing. And the peasant would say, well, what am I going to give you then? What do I really have? To offer. The king would say back, the one thing that you do have. The peasant, confused, of course, would say, Look, I've said to you before, and I'll say it again, I don't have anything. What do I have to offer you? And the king would say, You. You don't have any much of anything. You're you're a peasant, you're a common man. You don't have anything to offer me that I don't already have, except Yourself. Listen, church. The covenant between us and Jesus Christ is a Caesarean covenant. Where we come broken, frail, and possessing nothing. And we say to God, what could you possibly want with me? And so many times, that is the barrier for you and I in our lives. Is we, we go to God and we say, look at all the stuff that I've done. Look at all the trash that is associated with my life. Look at all the baggage that I would carry into this relationship. What could you possibly want with me? We say to God, I have nothing to give. I'm not worthy to even approach you. I'm not worthy to walk through the doors of a church. I'm not worthy to say a prayer. I'm not worthy to do anything. What do I have? And God says back to us, I want the only thing that you have to give. And that is yourself. And that, God says to us, is enough. All I want is you. And so our response to God and the incredible truths that we've learned about and all the steps and the way that Christ has walked through all of these and we also often say all the barriers that that prevent us from entering into this covenant is I have nothing to give. And God says, I know. You're not telling me anything new. But the very thing that you do have to give is the very thing that I want. Yourself our loyalty, our love, our commitment, our obedience. Because we don't have anything to offer the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his. And everything that we have has been given to us by the king. 
So don't you go thinking that you've got everything and that you've earned it. It is a gift from the king. He has entrusted it to you. And so the only thing we can give is our love, our loyalty, our commitment to the king of the world, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you.